Watcher of the Damned, Transmutation, Texas, by R.H. Snow. Episode 9. This week's episode, The Reckoning. The Light Hurts. When the Watcher opened his eyes, the world felt like sandpaper and tasted like burnt gunpowder. He tried to roll over and felt nothing but agony. Every muscle hurt. Mid-morning sunlight was streaming in through the bars, blinding him and banging into his pounding brain. Disoriented, he lay still, gaining his bearings. Where am I? How did I get here? Staring at the metal and concrete walls, he strained to find some familiar marker. He heard the lake lapping at the shoreline close by. He closed his eyes again, tried to remember the last thing he saw. A mangled chupacabra stiffening in the grass. Dark eyes, a golden face laughing. Henderson dead. He vaguely remembered being pulled up a low slope through the dark forest, and he clearly remembered the new vision of the afterling child sitting serenely on his chest. It made him feel even more anxious. Time to get up. Time to move. The watcher felt weak, and the gashes on his back felt tight and painful to the touch. He foggily remembered the after-effects of the chupacabra's poison, the ooze of virulent bacteria that was harbored under their claws. Probably a superbug evolved from the broth of so many dead bodies piled up after the happening. The Watcher was well known for his resistance to infection, but he was not immune. Still, his wounds were clean tented. He groaned. Flinging back the thin blanket, he pushed up off the floor and staggered to his feet. The room reeled and he fell against the wall, sliding down onto his knees. Suddenly the watcher was aware of his complete nakedness. Where were his boots? He felt his freedom from the chain before he saw it. But he blinked and looked down to make certain he was not hallucinating. The shackle was gone. The concrete floor around him was wet and swept and smelled of cedar. Just outside the covered enclosure, it appeared to have rained recently and the ground was still damp. He looked around. A burn barrel nearby smelled of wet ash. Now cool, a fire quenched hurriedly. A small bike helmet with a scuffed pink heart sticker hung from a bolt jutting out of the concrete wall behind him. His chain, shackle still attached, was padlocked to a gate, swinging open in the breeze. She must have removed the chain from the gate thinking the watcher was too sick to escape. 
or else the afterling was interrupted and had no time to lock it. The afterling, where is she? The watcher leaned over to vomit, but nothing came up. He couldn't find his clothes. Is this some kind of afterling trick? He listened, but heard nothing. If she was nearby, she might be watching for his next move. Then it is time to get going. He braced himself against the wall and stood up. Thirsty, he looked for his canteen and found it on a crate someone had used as a seat next to where he had been lying. He popped it open and drank. The water was fresh and sweet. He vomited, then drank again. His stomach was cramping and he felt a familiar itch deep in his muscles. So this is withdrawal. How long has it been? He had to get back to camp before, before they find Henderson and execute Abolita. The watcher assessed the wounds on his forearm. They were scabbed over, already healing. Scrambling, he forced himself upright. Spying the duffel bag, he staggered over to it and lifting it high, dumped out all its neatly arranged contents onto the concrete floor. He found a pair of dusty men's jeans and leapt into them and pulled them up. Too tight, but they would have to do. He pulled out a yellowed sleeveless undershirt, stretched it over his muscles and broad back, wriggling it into place. Over this, he flung a faded blue short-sleeved work shirt, left open at the front. One pair of socks, with holes but still usable, were discovered and he pulled them on too. It's here. It's in here somewhere. Where was his emergency kit? Laurel had passed the kit to Montel before the Watcher and Henderson left on scavenging patrol. Montel, in turn, was required to give the kit to Henderson as a last resort resource to be used only in the event of an emergency or a delay in return while on patrol. All handlers for public servants were issued a kit when their charges were required to be out of a camp or in transit, and only a sentinel or the warden could administer them. Emergency kits were tightly controlled. All doses were counted going in and out and inventoried so they wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. Today, it was going to fall into the wrong hands? His own. The emergency kit still had to be in the duffel bag. Grabbing the bag, he unzipped pockets in rapid succession, dumping out more contents and scattering them around with a reckless abandon. An extra paper-wrapped meal and a white plastic clamshell box fell out of the side pocket, the plastic kit spilling its contents all over the floor. There it is. He threw the now-empty duffel bag to the side, eagerly scooping up the white box and its precious payload. Grabbing the rubber tubing, he tied it around his left arm, then gripped it between his teeth to pull the tubing tight. He untaped his IV port. With trembling hands, the watcher unwrapped the preloaded syringe, flicked the needle, 
and plunged it into the ivy port. Leaning his forehead against the cool wall of the enclosure, the watcher sucked in his breath and felt the sweet poison course through his veins. It was an artificial heat and light, a synthetic dawn of life. Whatever. He felt alive again. He kept his eyes tightly closed and waited five minutes for the vertigo to pass. With every passing minute, he felt less sick, less hurt, and more invincible. He taped the port back into place and the dangling sticky remnant took another long pull from his canteen and wolfed down some jerky from Henderson's duffel bag stash. It was time to move again. He could see better now. The watcher scanned the room. Behind the crate seat, he found his hat and his belt coiled next to his boots. They were rinsed of their filth from his struggle, sans the shackle. He pulled on his rust-colored boots, broken down at the heel, holes in the soles, pointed toes curling, grabbed his belt, then headed to the duffel bag pile. Where were Henderson's guns? He sifted through the pile but found nothing. Looking along the walls and around the room, he came up empty. He kicked the crate and it broke open. Out spilled a treasure trove of weapons, a glorious cornucopia of killing tools. The afterman had cached Henderson's worn-pulled handled pocket knife, a serviceable field machete, an old police baton, and a beautiful old Mossberg 590 Mariner. A pump-action 12-gauge shotgun complete with strap, quick-grab holster, and filled side-saddle 8-shell ammo carrier. The watcher broke it open and counted. Seven shells still inside. The synthetic stock was a bit rough, and the barrel had a few scratches. But otherwise, it was in good condition. But the prize of all prizes was a heavy, beautiful bowie knife. Nine and a half inch blade, slightly dull, but of excellent 440 steel with a swaged trailing edge clipped point. Its burnished rosewood handle was framed by brass guard and heavy hawksheld pommel. The patina detooled leather sheath had seen much use, and its vintage was ancient. He wrapped his hand around the hilt and it felt as familiar and warm as a long-lost lover. At last, we are one again in the way of the sword. The watcher's face split into a tight grin of pure savagery. You little dickens, you've been scavenging the very best items from my territory. How long had the Afterling been out here? No matter. The weapons were his now. Henderson's M1911 and the new 38 were missing, along with the magazines and a box of ammo. He figured the Afterling might be drawn to the 38's small grip and light weight. Maybe she took the 45 as well. Fine. Fine. That can, that be, can recovered be recovered later. later. 
he started to choose weapons. He had many loves, but then he must be judicious. From the book, Musashi admonished the watcher, and he listened. You should should not not have have any special special fondness fondness for a particular particular weapon, weapon, or or anything anything else for that that matter. matter. Too Too much much is the same as not enough. enough. Without Without imitating imitating anyone else, else, you should have have as much much weaponry as suits you. In a can nearby, he found an assortment of attachments, accessories, straps, quick detached swivels, bungee corbs, carabiners, D-rings, and other essentials for the efficient weapons aficionado lay within. The watcher was pleased. The afterling had good taste in weapons and equipment. He linked some carabiners, rings, cords, and swivels of varying sizes to one large link and hooked them up to his belt with one additional strap for good measure. Not Not too too much, much. but just enough. He put the pocket knife in his front right pocket and the bowie knife on his belt, left side. The quick grab holster he fitted onto the right side position of his belt and the Mossberg went into his eagerly raiding hands. He chambered around. It felt good to be alive. The watcher slung his canteen crossbody to the left hip and the Mossberg to his right and into the holster. Just one more thing was needed. He grabbed his hat and slapped it onto his head. Time to go. He looked around. The room, previously so neat, was a shambles of gear. This is her own fault. If the afterling hadn't shot Henderson, none of us would be here right now. Or maybe he would be dead from the chupacabra who had been hiding in the branches of the oak. It didn't matter. She caused this mess and she was going to pay the price. Now, where is the afterlife? Seeing no sign of her near the enclosed porch, he crouched, made his way out the gate. Rehydrated and refueled, he discreetly relieved himself in the bushes near around the backside of the water treatment plant. Glancing up at the remains of the radio tower, he wondered if the afterling was up in her sniper's nest again. He didn't see her, but a man should never be caught with his pants down. Looking up into the sun didn't hurt so much now. He felt so much better after using the stuff and yet felt humiliated at his weakness. He needed this stuff now just to be able to operate normally. If I didn't have to save Abuelita, I would never have used the stuff again. He knew he was lying, and he didn't care. There would be a time for honesty later. Now was the time for action, at any cost. The watcher kept stealthily moving down the hill towards the great oak. Rain had fallen, and he could hear rushing water where the runoff was flowing in rivulets to the lake. This morning was cooler and he noticed the first yellow leaves of fall in the hackberry trees. How much time has passed? A sickening fear twisted inside him as he approached the oak. The entire area under the oak had been trampled, covered in boot prints. The watcher bent down to investigate the tracks surrounding the site. The 
the tracks of heavy men and heavy boots trailed up from the southeast, crushed a large circle into the surrounding grass, and then laid a trampled flattened path out into the brush to the northeast. The reunion posse. At least eight survivors, he estimated, were a mix of sentinels and citizens deputized by the judge under emergency orders. The warden would be leading the posse, followed by Sentinel Montel. As the watcher's handler, Montel would be pressed into service to utilize his intimate knowledge of the watcher's routes and to prove his loyalty to the judge and the system. The watcher felt sorry for Montel and vowed to make it as clean a kill as possible, if necessary. Knowing Montel, it will probably be necessary. The chupacabra's hairless body was still there, under the oak. It was crawling with flies, but only first-stage maggots were wriggling in the remains. The bald, grinning skull and soft underbelly had been already picked by buzzards flapping overhead, but the majority of the carcass was still intact. 24 to 36 hours have passed. His sledgehammer was missing from where he laid it, probably taken by the posse as evidence of the watcher's presence at the scene of Henderson's death. He moved further down the slope. Henderson's body was gone. A fly-encrusted bloodstain was all that was left where Henderson's body once lay. A smear and a drag mark led down to near the shore, where he spied a new shallow grave topped by rocks. Henderson. Large boot prints covered the damp sand surrounding the grave. Hastily dug and hastily buried, Henderson's body would probably wash away the next time the lake rose out of its banks. The dirt around the grave was still fresh and moist. The tops of the grass were still green where it was broken over. The posse was here just this morning. An upwelling of hope filled him. There might be time to still beat the posse back to camp, to Abuelita. But why didn't they follow the obvious drag marks that the afterling would have left behind when she dragged the watcher to the water treatment camp? Turning to search the grass, he noted the puddles and rivulets of mud, along with trails in the tall grass where water had washed down the slopes, flattening plants. He distinctly recalled the sound of wind and a great flash of thunder. Somewhere in the last 24 hours, a heavy rain had fallen and washed away the afternoon's tracks. That was helpful, but the water treatment plant should still have been investigated, as it was nearby. Posse may never have been trained to run a proper crime scene investigation, but even they should know better. Then he saw it. Paralleling the tracks made by the heavy men's boots, a small boot print, partially obscured, and a wide, obvious trail made with a crude drag of some sort. Someone made a false trail. 
that trail led away from the Watcher. The Angeline. Sly little fox in the woods. Moving low and fast, he followed heavy boot prints and the false trail. A few hundred yards out, a freshly killed boar lay stiffening in the filtered sun. The tracks of the posse ran through the puddle of blood, testimony to a brief deadly encounter in their wild chase. Their bloody tracks led into a ravine filled with dense greenbriar brush, where the stampeding feet of the posse tore a hole through hanging sheets of recurved thorns. Only with a keen eye could he see a sign that the afterling had been here. Another small boot print appeared in a thick tangle of greenbriar, barely discernible to a trained eye. Making his way to it, he found a spot where a small creature had burrowed into the briars. But was it a nest of an afterling or some other wild animal? As he inspected the crushed grass of the hideaway, a glimmer of droplets beneath the foliage caught his eye. Taking a stick, the watcher scratched back a pile of dried grass and dirt. Someone had hastily scraped over a wet spot to hide it. The scent of fear and pheromones was overpowering. The afterling. She had lured the unsuspecting posse into some of the thickest, most torturous brush in this area of the wildlands, then watched as they blundered by, merely feet away. But whether it was out of fear or necessity, she left behind evidence of herself in the process. The watcher had found it. He racked his brain over the dichotomy of the afterling. She was a reluctant but capable killer that wept over her victims, simultaneously existing as a nervous little animal hiding in the bushes. Why had she gone to all this trouble to lure the posse away from him? Probably the afterling was protecting her captive, a sick man she thought was too weak to escape from her lair. Instead, she had unknowingly bought the Watcher several hours of precious time to escape and make it back to reunion camp. Another possibility arose. Did they catch the afterling unawares? Huh, has she been captured? He doubted it. The Watcher quickly calculated. If he followed the afterling's trail continuing in this direction, it would add several hours to the trek back to the camp. But he might be able to find her, to capture her to prove his innocence. Conversely, that could make him too late to save Abuelita. Or he could go off her trail, to travel straight to camp, and get there before the posse. But even if he did beat the posse to camp, he would still have to prove that he didn't kill Henderson in order to save Abuelita. He had to make a choice. No time to hesitate. Go straight to camp and handle it there. He bounded south. For good or for ill, the Watcher was on his way. He had run southeast through the river bottoms for the last two hours. It was the fastest way to camp, but also the most dangerous. 
Wild boars, some weighing upwards of a thousand pounds, roamed these bottoms in vast herds of two hundred or more hogs. Acorn season was underway, and the hogs were rooting for them wherever they fell. The watcher moved as silently as possible, but speed cut down on stealth. As he ran, he looked for trees in the event that he needed to climb to escape any threats. It was midday, so cougars and coyotes were not as big a threat, but snakes were still lying out to soak up the autumn sun on pathways and stones. He slashed with the bowie knife through the thicket. Each time he encountered a cottonmouth or a copperhead, he hacked off its head and moved on. It was exhilarating to hold an edged weapon again. Even though the knife needed sharpening, the magnificent Bowie knife was still far better for quick dispatch of fast-moving threats than Smith's bulky hammer. He missed the feel of the sledge in his hands, though. Especially when clearing Greenbrier, it was a useful tool. As his feet slid through drifts of wet leaves, gnats flurried up, accompanied by a fresh, sharp scent that made the watcher's eyes water. He cursed his allergy to leaf mold and pulled up the neck of his t-shirt over his mouth and nose to block the hated spores. Grapevine twisted around slender saplings of persimmon and sassafras, their yellow leaves falling to the damp forest floor of the post-oak lowlands. Shuffling steadily through the duff, he slashed through the sinuous woody vines to slip his bulky body between. The watcher felt a sensation against his ankles and he swore. In his rush to get dressed he had forgotten to tuck his jeans legs into the boot tops. He reached down to brush away the creepy crawlies invading the sanctity of his boots and pushed through the vines. Something bit him. He rubbed his ankle once more then grabbed a vine again only to recoil in horror at the black wriggling mass swarming his hand. Seed ticks! Thousands of them! A visceral dread filled him as the watcher glanced down at a squirming shadow of pinpoint terrors engulfing his ankles. Slapping fiercely at them, he bolted from the vines and ran toward the river. He sweated with a real fear as he ran. Large infestations of the vermin could drain a man of blood in minutes, and he could feel them wriggling up the calves of his legs seeking softer skin. Crashing through the brush, he leapt into a shallow eddy of water near the bank, not even checking to see if any cottonmouths were in the water. Cottonmouths be damned. He hated ticks even more than he hated snakes. Up to his thighs in water, he plunged his hands into the cold river, scrubbing his legs vigorously to dislodge the bugs. The little, little bastards, bastards won't drown, the watcher snarled but they could be knocked loose from the swarm if they hadn't yet attached to skin. Stripping off his boots and socks, he slapped them against the rocks and swept them through the rushing waters to get rid of the bloodsuckers. Satisfied they were sufficiently purged of the tick spawn, the watcher flung them onto the sandy riverbank, then proceeded to strip off his blue jeans, turning them inside out to rinse them thoroughly then wiped the remaining seed ticks from his horny hide. The watcher briefly wondered if the afterling had ever encountered any kind of ticks. As terrible as the idea was, 
the thought of her soft skin and the rushing water was momentarily intriguing. He would have dwelt on this scenario longer were he not trying to save Abuelita from death. The watcher refocused his mind and splashed out the water to wriggle back into his wet jeans, then retrieve his boots and socks. He stumped up the bank and searched for a place to sit while pulling them on. The man did not want to repeat the scenario by sitting in another swarm. He grabbed a fallen branch protruding from a tangle of kudzu and pulled up on it. The branch creaked and spun as the vines tore away, revealing the mate surface of an uncorrupted titanium carbon alloy frame beneath. Shocked, the watcher pulled away the rest of the covering kudzu to reveal the tail section of a wrecked hulk. A Boone and Haney palisgram lay on its side, the last incarnation of the gyrofoil military aircraft. The red, white, and blue of a shield emblazoned with a five-pointed star shone from beneath the encrusting vines. The emblem of the Lone Star Republic. The watcher reached out to touch the flag, and a glimmer of pride filled him, before being quenched by the reality of life after. That Texas was gone, that shining star, the alpha male of the world. The heliscram must have crashed during the happening. Everything crashed during the happening. Whether it was an electromagnetic pulse or some other unexplained phenomenon, no one knew. But the happening killed all electronic and digital devices, including engines with electrical components. The Hilliscram, with its hybrid scramjet engines, enclosed gyroblades, and digital microcomponents, never stood a chance against that terrible day. Suddenly, it was as real to the Watcher again. The memory never really went away. It would just get overgrown by reality, only to be uncovered by some unwitting trigger from the present. One second, the world was going about its usual business as Saul checked his We Speaks Ring world for a message from work. The agents, at best, weren't happy with the turn of events from his last appointment and were calling for him to turn himself into the Dallas office. Then Saul saw the flash. Even in the shadow of the trees of the running trail, beneath the awning of the ice cream stand, the flash was brighter than the sun. A split second later, a speedy bus slammed into a light pole next to the ice cream stand, the concussive blast knocking Saul from his feet. This was followed by a massive fireball as the first airliner hit the ground one street over, obliterating a school. The earth rocked on its foundations as aircraft fell from the sky, screams punctuating the end of life as everyone knew it. He shook himself back into the present, momentarily dazed by the trauma of his memory it amazed the watcher to think how all these years he had never found this wreck. He and Montel had searched this whole area but had never seen it. 
the hilliscram was a hidden treasure and could have yielded much value even in the technological desert of life after. He grimaced and pulled the vines back into place. Exploring the wreck would have to wait. Beyond this thicket of bottomland trees, a park-like oak savanna opened up into a sunny upland, and the watcher caught glimpses of an impossibly blue October sky through branches of sycamore and ash. Now he could see further ahead, and he knew just beyond that rise rose the outer berm with its crest of thorny mesquite trees circling Reunion Camp. Thirty feet to the inside of that, an inner 15-foot-tall stockade fence hewn of ash and cedar, which ringed the camp proper. Between these two barricades, sentinels and servants usually performed labor and maintenance during the daylight hours, and at dusk they retreated into the inner walls through the gate at the archway. Today, however, was quiet. No sound of the shovels in the lane. They had all been pulled inside for the safety of the walls. A security measure. Dangerous prisoners on the loose. The faint smell of mesquite wood smoke and barbecue drifted up in the early autumn air. The kitchen crew was cooking dinner. He heard Smith's hammer ringing in the distance her anvil song, the rhythm of her strokes, and the low murmur of voices in the camp made a familiar melody. It was the sound of home. Forty-three years of blood and tears rolled down the years and fell into a muddied puddle of submerged emotions. The watcher closed his eyes and imagined Joe headed for the kitchen's back door to steal his kiss and a cookie from Abuelita. He opened his eyes. It was time to go get Abuelita. Author R.H. Snow. Thank you for listening to my post-apocalyptic sci-fi western saga, Watcher of the Damned, Transmutation, Texas, Episode 9, The Reckoning. Be sure to tune in next time at watcherofthedamned.com for even more epic adventures in post-apocalyptic Texas. Next episode, Showdown.